All right, Justin, sing me a song about having a good day in the Oakland slash Compton area of California. <laughs> I hate that you man. Oh, uh, California knows how to party. <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. Knows how to party in the city. There you go. All right, that was not the song I was thinking of, but I'll actually give you that one. I didn't think yeah. of that one. I was referencing a very specific song, and I thought I gave it away based on my question. And so, Heather, I won't make you sing this song, but do you know what song I was trying to get Justin to sing? Repeat your thing you said again. Sing me a song about having a good day in the Oakland mm-hmm. slash Compton area of California. Um, uh, I don't. I don't know which one it is. Is Guys. it? Um, Hold on. Nope. I got nothing. I said the name of the song in the question. Good Day by Ice Cube. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. He had a triple double and wasn't even trying. (laughs) Dang. I should have known that. I should have sang them both and got double W's. Yeah. But yours was a good option, though, Justin. It was. It was. That was not, you know, although it was not the song I was asking for, it did technically fit my criteria and it fit the spirit of my criteria. Yeah, and that song, come on, man, that song is tight. Come on, man, that's a classic right there. That that was a good one, yeah. But I I really thought you guys would get it, because I said the name of the song in my question. Man. So disappointed. Even though Justin technically got a W, I'm still disappointed in you guys. Let's start the music. (laughs) Hey, cinema fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Cinema Slayers podcast. I'm Sterling, and as always, I am joined by Heather and Justin. And today we will be talking about white savior movies. And we will also be talking about what we liked, didn't like, and everything in between with the kind of missed movie blind spotting. So, like I said, we will be starting this off with white savior movies. And if you don't know what a white savior movie is, I'm not going to explain it to you because you should be able to get it by the examples that we give during you know this segment of the episode so i guess i don't know let's go kind of round table and we'll each just say one and we'll talk about it and then we'll move on to another one uh let's start off with you justin what is an example of a white savior movie for you that you would like to talk about right now okay so we have mentioned on several podcast episodes we've always kind of mentioned green book and we always kind of quickly just kind of touch on it oh yeah you know it sucks because it wasn't historically accurate etc etc it's got white savior and then we kind of move on so this gives me the opportunity to really just talk about this movie in detail so in this movie you've got two characters and, and basically essentially it is a odd couple buddy movie travel you know odd couple buddy movie traveling type of movie a road trip movie if you will yeah road trip yeah that's a better word for it yes the road trip odd couple type of movie so that's kind of the basis for how they tell the story in green book but 
this story is also like they usually say in a movie like this, it's based on a true story or based on true events. And the problem with this film is that when you really compare the true events to what happened in the movie, you can see how problematic it is. So Green Book, just to quickly explain what that is, in case you haven't seen any of our other episodes where we briefly explained it. So the Green Book was basically, it was a book that that black people kept on them for when they were traveling. It was safe places that they could go so that they wouldn't be persecuted, so they wouldn't be lynched, killed, tortured, etc. So this was a book that basically gave them places that they could go, safe houses, places that they could sleep, hotels where they could go where they won't be discriminated against, etc. So that's kind of the basis for That is what the Green Book is. Now, this story is about an African-American jazz pianist who was also he was also gay um, and uh, was a famous uh, musician, Don Shirley. And it was about his relationship with his driver, Tony Lip who's uh, who's an Italian-American bouncer and then turned driver, who's played by Viggo Mortensen. Now, you would think that a movie like this would be told from the viewpoint of the guy who was the genius African-American classical and jazz pianist, right? Because back in those times of racial times, that was very rare. That was very special. You know, he was very much an anomaly in a very... um really in a time where racial hatred was just commonplace. So you would think that this story would be modeled after that viewpoint, but it's not, but that's not the story that we get. The story is told through the lens of the white guy in this situation, the Italian American Tony Lip. That's the lens that this movie is told from. So we start with Tony Lip, who is this racist person through and through. Um, some black, there's a scene where some black workers are there to do some work at his house. The wife offers them some water, and Tony Lip gets up and throws the the two glasses glasses that they drank out of away. He refuses to put them in to be washed. So we're talking about that kind of racist, that the kind that says, I will not drink after you after a cup is washed type of racist that that's how deep this guy was. They showed us this in the film. But then this guy, Tony Lip, proceeds to tell Don Shirley later in the film that he needs to get in touch with his black roots. He introduces Don Shirley to fried chicken and tells him this is something that you need to eat and know because this is part of the culture, man. This is what uh, you guys like and everything. And I can't believe you've never eaten this. And he, in a lot of parts in this movie, motivates Don Shirley to pick himself back up. He protects Don Shirley a few times when people were um, trying to... um, persecute Don Shirley for being gay and different things like that. And Tony, good old Tony, good old racist Tony Lip is there to protect him. And so that's the problem with this film. And then when you go to find out about what 
who these people actually were. Tony Lip really was through and through just a driver for Don Shirley. But Don Shirley wasn't estranged from his black culture, so to speak. He had already eaten fried chicken. He wasn't he wasn't estranged by his family members or anything like that for being gay. They were fine with him actually being gay and they accepted him. So this caused a big uproar after this film was over and of course uh, by now you know you probably know it won the academy award for best picture uh spike lee i think famously walked out of the oscars when he heard or 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 tried to right yeah he tried to walk out that's right he attempted to walk out when he heard that this film won because he knew all the controversy surrounding it and the actor that plays don shirley in this mahershala ali actually wound up apologizing to the family afterwards because he said he had no idea that it was so historically and accurate that when he was doing research for this role and trying to get research from producers and things like that and people to talk to suggestions etc they told them that there was really nobody that he could reach out and talk to about this character about this person so that's why he never came by that's why he never met the family and he told them in his apology that he would have done those things had he not been informed that they we're no longer alive. So yeah, that's a green book for you in a nutshell. See, I didn't know about that part of, about with the family, but like, yeah, I've, I've never liked the movie green book. Cause I knew what the green book was. And for me, it's like, Oh, like the movie came across to me. Like there was a hidden chapter of the green book that was just, Oh, have a white driver and you'll be safe no matter where you go. And it kind of just discounts the historical, uh, impact that the green book had it kind of just undercuts all of it i don't yeah i still to this day don't really know what that movie had to do with the green book like why did it had to be why was it even called that i don't really understand why they felt the need to do that yeah especially if you're going to tell the story from the perspective of the italian guy who doesn't need it so exactly why tell the story from that perspective if if it's going to be called green book you know yeah and uh i remember those scenes from the trailer too when when i saw the scenes in the trailer for green book with the scenes of them eating fried chicken in the car and where it was just like one of those scenes where it's like oh hey you know i'm going to introduce you to this because i understand black culture more than you buddy and also that's such a weird reductive stereotyping of black culture. Like, yeah, like like they're acknowledging the stereotype and yet trying to, I guess, elevate it to it actually not being a stereotype. It's just a part of the culture when all honesty, if you really break it down and you want to talk about the culture of fried chicken, that's the culture of the fucking South in general. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's just nobody in the South that doesn't eat fried chicken. And to me, that's what makes that's one thing I've never understood about that stereotype is they're like, yeah, black people love fried chicken. Who the fuck doesn't love fried chicken? I mean, that's (laughs) just the weirdest fucking thing in the world to try to use as a stereotype. Like, oh, you guys like something delicious. Ha ha. Sucks to be you guys. (laughs) What? (laughs) I've never understood it. But yeah, that's why. uh, And I'm, 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 I'm glad you brought up 
uh, Spike Lee because a lot of people thought Spike Lee was trying to walk out because Black Klansman didn't win. And he was like, oh, no, I don't give a fuck that Black Klansman didn't win. I give a fuck that that movie did. Yeah. And honestly, like, I didn't even know. I mean, and I, it's, if I'm being honest, I haven't watched the movie. Um, it's not one that I got around to seeing at any point yet. But yeah, like, I just hearing the controversy around that and the whole thing with Spike Lee, that's when it started to come to my attention of, oh, what is the uproar, uproar about with this movie? And that's actually when it all kind of started coming into my mind as like a memorable thing. Like I, I honestly didn't know much about any of this movie other than it was completely like everyone put it in all these categories at the Oscars. Like other than that, I really didn't know much about this movie. So yeah, just the controversy surrounding it seems to be a bigger deal, which rightfully so than the movie itself. Yeah. And it's one of those movies that it has great performances in it. Uh, Mahershala, Mahershala, Ali, did I say his name right? I've been really trying to get this man's right, name right. Yeah, Mahershala, you yes, you did. You nailed right, it. Good. I've been trying because, you know, at some point in the future, we're also going to be talking about this man when he plays Blade. So I've got to get this man's name right at some point. And plus, it's just, you know, respectful to say somebody's name correctly. Um, but like him and Viggo Morrison do great jobs of acting. You know, they they do amazing performances. It's just so sad that it's, you know, with what Justin was saying with Mahershala, uh, Mahershala Ali, not knowing that stuff about the guy's family, it, it kind of makes you feel like that him and Viggo Mortensen were kind of just duped into doing this movie that they were just yeah. told like, yep, this is how it was. See, it's just on the premise of something else. Yeah. Yeah. Like, look, it's just a great movie about overcoming racism and stereotypes. And yep, it, that's all it is, guys. You know, because, yeah. yeah, there's I mean, and it's sad that a lot of a lot of people don't know the historical context of the Green Book. And I think that's another reason why originally that movie didn't have a lot of uproar at first. You know, it's because people didn't really realize what they were referencing in that title. I certainly I, I knew what the Green Book was, but I didn't know that that's exactly what it was. That I didn't realize that that was the Green Book they were referencing in the title, because when you see the trailers for that movie, that has nothing to do with the Green Book. So I didn't make that connection initially because it, it, it makes no damn sense. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's just important to say that, like, I'm glad that you mentioned the fact that they th there is some good acting in the movie and there and there are some good performances. And that's what you really have to watch with these white savior narratives because a lot of these movies that you will find on the list of white savior movies are not bad movies in the traditional sense they're going to probably have pretty solid stories they're going to have good credible actors there's going to be credible acting but what makes white savior movies problematic in my opinion anyway is that i feel that they perpetuate this idea that there are just these benevolent, just good white people that are necessary to help these people of color in their plights or their situations. So it just kind of perpetuates this idea that, you know, it makes 
white people who are more ignorant to racism and things like that, this is a movie that makes them feel better. Oh, it was bad, but it wasn't that bad. There were still good people there and they stood up for what was right like Tony Lip. Or look, Tony Lip was a racist, but he still did good things. He still did good things for black people. So he's redeemed. His racism doesn't matter because of the deeds that he does in this movie. And I know that may sound extreme, but these are but these views and these things are perpetuated. So to me, this helps perpetuate the idea that racism doesn't exist anymore or that, oh, well, we were like that. But look, we're not like that anymore. Or, yay, I can identify with this character because that's who I would be. I would be the good white helping helping this black guy. So I think that's the problem with that's the inherent problem with it for me is that you're not getting a story told from the person of color's perspective. This is being these movies are manipulated to where it's from a white person's perspective so that a white audience member can be more satisfied with it. It's not interested in telling the actual stories of the people of color. And for me, that's a problem. Well, to me, with, with, with what you said, it, it gets rid of the systematic problems of it all. I know a big buzzword right now is systematic racism. And these movies get rid of that aspect of it because they're like, yeah, there were racist people, but look, we had these good white people and then they helped solve the problem. Well, mm-hmm. it did individually, if you will. You know what I mean? In Don Shirley's life, was it a little easier during that time because this one white guy stopped being, you know, stopped being as racist? Yes. Did that do anything as a whole to really actually combat systematic racism? Not at all. Does nothing. And it makes it appear like that's not a factor. Like you were saying, like it makes it seem like it went away, you know? And yeah. With, with the whole thing, it's, it, yeah, to, to, to fix systematic problems, it, it, it does take everybody to do their part to fix systematic problems. But white savior movies, that's what they, they get rid of the systematic elements of it. Because essentially one white guy will, or one white person will do something. And it's like, oh, look, it's benevolent. It's nice. It's non-racist. All the problems are fixed. And it, it really, it really diminishes what really the problems are, you know? Um, so let's go into another one. Heather, do you have an example for us? Yeah, I mean, in talking about all these films, the the one that always was pretty much in the forefront of my mind was The Blind Side. <laughs> um, I know people have mixed feelings on this movie and all this stuff. Like, it's a movie that is also a big Oscar movie because Sandra Bullock won uh, for Best Actress in this movie. All these things about it. But, um, but I mean, it's kind of like pretty famously well known that um, the real Michael Orr, so, you know, blindside about the family who took in the, he was from high school, right? This kid from high school. And basically he became like this really great football player. Um, But just the whole story behind it was not at all like portrayed accurately or for the most part, it wasn't. I mean, Michael Orr, who is the the player that it's based on has famously said, like, and I'm not really pleased with how I was represented and how my life was represented. This is not accurate, things like that. And, um, but also, I mean, you can kind of see that in the movie too. Like there are moments in the film where 
Um, like, and, and I'm not saying like I hate the movie, but like there there are definitely moments in it where you feel like it seems like the only reason that he had a shot at even getting noticed was because of this white family that took him in. Um, so I don't know. It just was there's a lot of factors there that make me feel like, yeah, it's definitely a white savior type of movie. And I mean, as a side note, too, like this is not at all a movie that I would say is Sandra Bullock's best performance and like of all the movies that she could have gotten an award for this is not the one that I think it should have been um but that aside it's I mean the movie's fine and I get it they want it to be this uplifting movie about you know helping people and you know believing in yourself and knowing that there's people out there who are great even if they don't have the opportunities everybody else has so I get the point that they're trying to make in the movie but it's just definitely a movie where you just feel like they're the the white family who takes in this this black high school kid who didn't have a family around it, it just elevates them to make them seem like they're just these amazing people and that's the reason that Michael Orr was even noticed if that makes sense so yeah I would say that's the one for me that usually stands out with this topic oh I've got a story about this one so Uh-oh. all right so in the movie uh it's Michael Orr is just a big guy and Sandra Bullock is the one that teaches him everything about football. And he becomes <laughs> an amazing football player because Sandra Bullock saved him and taught him about football. And then Michael right. Orr, after the movie came out, I was like, no, I was already playing football. Like, right. I, I already knew, like, I could play football. Yeah. I just played at a different school because of this family. Like, that was the big yeah. thing. It's like, this movie makes a big point of Sandra Bullock's the one that teaches him how to play. And yeah, he's like, no. I was already playing, you know, I was already pretty good, but I just played on a better team. Like, yeah, it's, and and that's what, to me, what's sad about this movie is this movie goes out of its way to make itself white savior. Like Michael Orr would have mm-hmm. never made it to college and never made it to the NFL. If it wasn't for Sandra Bullock teaching him how to play football. Right. And he was just so good at it. Well, no, <laughs> like he already could play like that always helps. Yeah. And like, it's just so blatant. Like, I just remember scenes from the movie where he was having trouble. I mean, literally, he was having trouble on the football field. And I remember her pulling him to the side and telling him, well, just think about it. And she gave him this movie lesson in all these metaphors and stuff like that and oh you gotta you gotta protect them and like it was just this like real raw raw type of speech and like like all of those inspirational sports movies and then he's like he he has that look of determination yeah I can do it now because of you Sandra Bullock and he goes out there and like immediately he is better (laughs) and it's just comical almost in how it, it it does that it's just so obvious what they're trying to do and man if they had just tried to make this a little more realistic i mean even when you look at the real story you you probably didn't even have to mess with it that much and it's still a good story also that whole part at the beginning where he's out in the rain and cold and sandra bullock sees him in the dark of the rainy mm-hmm. night and goes oh you i'm i'm going to care for you you that need didn't help <laughs> yeah you need help that, that that poor boy needs help it wasn't anything I, I was so shocked when i found out that 
well, not shocked, but I was just like, none of that happened. He had actually been with several different families and some even black families before that. And I believe that the reason why the the person that the mother that Sandra Bullock plays, the reason why that family found out about him or took him in was because they knew one of the families that he was already at. And I think there was some Mm. sort of like exchange there, but that's how they even knew who he was. He wasn't found in the rain with nowhere to go by Sandra. Sandra Bullock. So, yeah, and it must be so devastating or like really a blow to everything he worked for to become a good football player for somebody to kind of take it away and say like the only reason is because of this family. Like that would be yeah. super hard on somebody if that's your actual talent like to say, "Oh, you're so good because of this family. That's great." Like especially like Sterling after you were saying like, "No, I was playing football before." Like you're just basically stripping away everything that he had worked for so hard and saying that he wouldn't have had it unless of this, you know, family and the Tui family had trained him and taken him in like that's very that that would be a hard pill to swallow you know well yeah because it it takes away all his hard work and all everything he Mm -hmm. did it's all Sandra Bullock's hard work and I I know it's not actually Sandra Bullock it's the character she plays but in the movie it's Sandra Bullock's hard work that makes him a great football player (laughs) and let's be real he wasn't even that great of a football player when he got to the NFL he was okay at best I can say that he played for my Titans but yeah, that's it. It just it strips away all of that. And this whole movie becomes about how this white family made this man an NFL lineman, like an offensive mm-hmm. lineman in the NFL. Like he's there because a white family did all this for him when I mean, and, and what they did in his life is great. Like it's and it's not to diminish anything that this real family did for Michael Orr. Yeah. Like, yeah, what they did. is it, It's all great. Like they're his family. That's you know, that's fucking awesome. But like this movie just makes it it's it's not about Michael Orr. It's about this family. And yeah. they, they saved him. And like and that scene you're talking about, Justin, because uh, the reason why it's my favorite scene in the movie is because of how ridiculous it is when he's like kind of just sucking at blocking. <laughs> and then she goes up to him and he's like, she's like, hey, you think of that quarterback like he's one of us in the family and you protect him like you would protect one of us. And he goes, okay. And then he's the best lineman in the history of ever from that scene. Right. (laughs) Right. Like, what? Yeah. Like, fuck off. And then apparently, too. And apparently, too, like the whole idea of, I mean, it just kind of, it didn't really lean towards the side of like there was any kind of racial tension between them, you know, when he got taken in by them. But apparently, Michael Orr did say like, no, we both had reservations about it. Like that's, that was a real thing. Like it wasn't super bad, but there was tension there. You know, it wasn't just like immediately I'm feeling like part of the family and they are feeling like I'm part of their family, you know? So yeah, I mean, they just really play it up as if like these people had no, you know, no flaws whatsoever. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah, it's just, it's a bit um, exaggerated, I would say. And why would you take that out of the movie? That makes everything so much more interesting. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, I guess they tried to do a little bit of it, but not really. You know what I mean? Like it just, yeah, that would have, and then overcoming that together and realizing on both ends, like, Hey, we both have work to do to fix this issue. That would have been way better. Yeah. But like, it all plays out like a weird modern day, like movie version of different strokes. 
Like <laughs> they just, they get adopted and it's just like, yep, we're just a family now. Cause there's never any issues in adoption. <laughs> never. Right. Ever. When you, you're clearly, you, you don't look like this is your family. You know, you don't feel like this is your family. Like that was a big thing they did in the movie. And yeah, like there's just that plus the fact of adoption in general and you like just all the factors, you know? Yeah, I don't know. And it's one of those things. It's like, like I said, what, like, why do you take that out? Because seeing those issues and them overcoming those issues and still becoming a family and all this other stuff, like, how is that not more uplifting? uplifting? Yeah. Like, why do you just brush over those things? If anything, it's, it's more authentic. It's more real. It's, it's more interesting. It's, it's a more yeah. uplifting movie when they overcome more. Mm-hmm. Never, nothing's more uplifting when they overcome less. Like, yep, we had less challenges. Such an uplifting story. Like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. such a great point. And, and, and what's really sad is even if there had just been kind of like this 50-50, you've got this tough white woman who's benevolent and cares, and she's trying to stand up for this guy. But even if there was a, a, a 50-50 there where you get to learn a little bit more about Michael Orr and why he was so good at football and how he persevered, and if they could somehow have told those stories equally. But Michael Orr in this most of the time is like the this sheepest he's sheepish he's like this gentle giant almost and he's like sheepish and hardly speaks and it almost seemed like he had mental problems or something you know it's just like the the way that he was portrayed like i mean and he just i mean didn't have many lines and when he did speak it was just you know it was only a it just seemed like a placeholder for sandra bullock to kick the winning field goal that that's what it felt like (laughs) you know it just there's a football reference for you but but it just uh that's what it felt like man like they just made him a a rock a stone of a character and And apparently that's not even his personality yeah 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 and that just makes it even that much more egregious you know yeah well let's change to a new one because we're gonna hit the trifecta of academy award-winning white savior movies here because i'm gonna (laughs) bring up the help oh Because I know a ton of people love the inspirational story of the help about how, you know, this little white girl just ended racism because she because she <laughs> talked to black people. Um, yeah. Fuck that movie. Um, and it's funny, too, because uh, what's her name? Uh, Viola Davis, right? She won an Academy Award for that movie. Yeah. And she was by she, far the best part, though. <laughs> and she's also come out against it like, you know, Mahershala. Uh, Mahershala Ali and like when you know Michael Orr talking about blindside and stuff like that where this movie is kind of the same like uh, Viola Davis was talking about how she regrets doing the help and being a part of that movie um, hmm. I, didn't because, know that. I didn't know that yeah yeah because of the message it, it, it gives that you know essentially all it took to end racism was just Emma Stone talking to them and writing a book about it and then it's just problems over and yeah, it's, it's to me, that's one of the, the, the most problematic movies of like these three that we're talking about, because so many people love the help and they love talking about the help and they love how just warm and, and 
and you know powerful the message was and all this other stuff when to me when i watch that movie i'm just like oh this movie's hollow as fuck and that's all it is to me it just rings hollow because to me especially with a lot of these movies that we're talking about today with this stuff it just it ticked every single white savior box that has ever existed in a movie and it's to me just so disingenuous to the problems especially that like black people and just all minorities in general like that they felt during that time because i think more so than anything it kind of like i said it just kind of discredits the fact that everything was systematic our society was built at that time to be prejudiced and to segregate and to vilify anybody that wasn't white our country as a whole was built around that at the time and this movie is just like yeah that was a problem but you know she talked to him and wrote a book about it. And then all these people read this book and were just like, man, racism's bad, man. These, these people were doing stuff and, you know, we shouldn't have been doing that to them. Let's just end racism now. <laughs> and like, that's how the movie comes across. <laughs> and I mean, it, to me, that's just so disingenuous because, I mean, you have the Civil Rights Act passed and like, you know, you had school, you know, schools have being forced to integrate and all this other stuff. And if you listen to this movie, it's like, Yep, that stuff happened and it just everything was just a-okay after that. You know, the National Guard didn't have to go to schools and force these schools to integrate because there were lynch mobs outside of them waiting to kill people that were coming to their schools that were black. Like, come the fuck on, people. I don't know. I've just I've always had issues with the movie The Help. And it's just it's been one of those movies that people always bring up that people love. And it's got an Academy Award winner in it. And I mean, I don't know. Didn't Emma Stone win one for La La Land? Yeah. Yeah. So this one, this movie has multiple Academy Award winners in it. And it just kind of goes with what we were talking about. Viola Davis in this movie won an Academy Award. Sandra Bullock won one for Blind Blind Side. Um, The Green Book won Best Picture. Whilst also having two Academy Award winners in it. And it's like by, I don't know. And it's one of the things that, you know, everybody complains about Oscars so white and all this other stuff. but. I mean, it's not just that. It's the fact that the Academy Awards will nominate people and nominate movies that still kind of just blow past the issue anyway because the movie itself, quote-unquote, confronted racism. And that's all that it needed. Mm -hmm. You know, The Help, The Green Book, Blindside, they all confront racism. And because it it, it confronted racism and said racism was bad, then it's like, oh, then that means the movie's good. Like, and I'm not saying that every movie that like they're not like that, but I'm just saying like they use that as an example of why of of how they're not so white. Oh, you can't yeah. say we're white, or like you can't say we're not progressive or anything like that. Look at all these anti-racism movies that people win awards for. It's to me, it's the movie equivalent of I have a black friend or I have a gay friend. <laughs> yeah, it like, is. That's all these movies are. It They're like, is. You can't say Hollywood's racist. The Green Book won Best Picture. Right. Got it. Like it's it's just that that scapegoat to get rid of the 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 quote unquote guilt they feel by being just called racist. And I think like these movies and stuff like that are examples of it. When you do have better examples of all this stuff, and and it's one of those sad things that until you really see a systematic change within the Academy Awards themselves. Even Moonlight winning an Academy Award to me rang hollow. And Moonlight is a fucking amazing movie. Yeah. It 
it truly tackles some of the issues of the movies we're talking about now that they quote unquote say they tackle. But like this movie does tackle serious issues in a very authentic and genuine way. And it won Best Picture. And to me, it just was Hollywood weird white guilt is all it was. I'm not saying it's not deserving of it at all. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I don't trust why the Academy Awards did it. Yeah. And I, and I know that that's really kind of off topic. But to me, that's what movies like The Help are. And these other three movies we're talking about. And that's why I specifically wanted to bring up The Help with this. So we'd have the three movies back to back with Academy Award winners in it or from those movies. You know, because some yeah. of the other ones we'll talk about didn't have those. Um, but yeah, it's just, I guess at this point, uh, what are some of y'all's thoughts about the help? Yeah. And I was going to say too, like, it's interesting because that, I guess that wasn't one that was in the forefront of my mind. Um, and I mean, maybe I can be one of those people guilty of saying that I really like that movie. But for me, I think the reason it didn't come to mind for me is because, and as much as you guys know that I love Emma Stone, like, I just, to me, even though this movie was supposed to be about like how she helped and wrote this book and all this stuff, I, she wasn't really for me, like the main characters, the main character. And she wasn't the person that stood out the most to me in this movie. For me, it was Viola Davis and Octavia Spencer that stood out. The scenes that I remember, the moments that I remember from that movie, the performances I remember are them. And maybe that's why in the forefront of my mind, that's why I didn't think of it that way. But I was, but I mean, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, it's just, I guess maybe their performances and what they brought to the roles is maybe just kind of what made me, you know, forget the fact of what they were trying to do with that movie, if that makes sense. But, um, but yeah, I think you, you are right. I mean, that's a good point you bring up for sure. Well, with that, I completely understand liking this movie because one of the movies I'm going to bring up later is one of my favorite movies. And I didn't even think of it as white savior until I was looking at a white savior list. And that was on that. And I was like, no, it's not. And then I thought about it and I was like, fuck, that's white savior shit. <laughs> so I completely get it. And I think, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast and you, you know, you guys very much have your own reasons and all this other stuff. I'm just saying from my side, one reason why I wanted to do it is just to point out what these movies are. And it's not necessarily a bad thing to like them because I mean, blindside isn't a terrible movie. I don't like it, but I get why people do. And I'm not trying to, and I, I don't want to guilt anybody into not liking these movies, but I think a part of liking these movies is to also understand just what they can mean to other people and what their messages can mean as a whole, you know, because I yeah. totally get what it's like to watch a movie and just like it. And you might not, I mean, and I'm not saying you don't know why, but I'm just saying I've liked tons of movies where I watch it and I'm like, fuck, I don't know why, but I like it. Like that's the feeling I have. Like a, a, a very recent example of something we talked about uh, was the, the new Charlie's angels movie. It's not a good movie. It's not, but I'll be damned if I don't like it. I liked it when I watched that movie and it ended my feeling at the end of it was I liked it. I get it. Like, and it's, you know, and I, like I said, I acknowledge it's a very flawed fucking movie, but still I can't, I cannot overcome the feeling I had of when I watched it. And when I watched it again, I liked it, you know? So I don't want, you know, with this movie, like you were saying, you liked it and all this other stuff and that's fine. And I'm not trying to say that people shouldn't like these movies. It's just, it's to me, I wanted to point out the trend that Hollywood has had forever when it comes to something like this. Like once Hollywood more or less integrated, this has been a common theme for movies 
And it's not like it ever went away. I mean, what Green Book was, what, 2019, 2018, 2018, I think. Yeah. That's how recent all this shit goes. 2018. Yeah. And maybe like the maybe a part of the reason that I um, have a little bit more of a liking towards the help is because I think it's the first thing I saw Viola Davis in where I was like, man, she can act. Like, <laughs> it's kind of what, like, spurred my love for Viola Davis, honestly, because she is wonderful. So maybe that's more also why I like it. <laughs> yeah. And um, and I was just going to say, yeah, the help is I can understand why you like it, because, uh, again, just kind of like Green Book, it has some very very good acting performances. I'm a big fan of Emma Stone and I, I, I loved her performance in that. Viola Davis is very, is very, very extremely good in that too. Definitely was the standout of the, the movie. Um, just like, I mean, I, hell, I like Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali. You know, I like these people. Um, and everything like that. And I think that it's just important to note that these d- d- don't get us wrong. We're not necessarily saying that that's why this is a um, a challenging topic to talk about, because these movies are not bad move. The help when if you just looked at it just from a story standpoint, acting, pacing, etc., it is not a bad movie. So like Sterling said, I hope that people understand that it is not a bad movie in the sense of its mechanics or that the fact that it's a movie, but it does perpetuate a certain type of idea. And if you're going to like these movies, I think it's just good to understand what these movies are and understand that this should not shape your world view of things that happened. And I just think that this is where uh, I would just urge people to broaden their horizons. Watch movies that actually have black voices that are told from black perspectives that are told from other perspectives of color before you just base your perspective on one way to tell this story. And I think that that's just important to say is that yes you can watch these movies enjoy them i'm pretty sure some of you have them as part of your collection but but understand where they belong this is very much a movie and it perpetuates a certain idea but it's not an idea that you should live by or live with you should want that other perspective you should also seek and look for that other side of these stories as well and that's That's where really I think a lot of your true gems are and it'll shape your perspective a little more fairly when it just comes to uh, the stories of other people of color. I mean, yeah, and this I I think this kind of goes back to what you were saying about Green Book, Justin, is the help is a story about racism and the quote unquote plight of of African-Americans in this cult in this country. But once again, it's told from the perspective of a white girl, which just. Yeah, that's it. It could have actually been from their perspective. That would have been nice. Um, but yeah, yeah. let's let's go ahead and go. Uh, let's move on. Let's uh, let's let's uh, let's let's snake this, or I don't know how you want to do this. Uh, let's let's just go in reverse order. I'll start this next one with with the example I was talking about with a movie that I absolutely love, and I know a lot of people love. And once it was pointed out to me that it was a white savior movie, I was like, "Holy fuck, it is!" 
And that is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And I know people are out there saying, Sterling, no, 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 it's Indiana Jones. But Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is Indiana Jones going to India and saving the poor India people, the Indians there, from this cult. Because no one in India could have done that. Had to be Indiana Jones just going to another country and just saving them from their plight. (laughs) And I'm just like, oh, fuck, it is. Like, that's exactly what that movie is. And I mean, and, and don't get me wrong. The fact that it's a white savior movie doesn't mean that now I'm like, fuck Indiana Jones and I'm never going to watch that movie again. It's a fantastic fucking movie, but we just have to be real with it. And it's 100% a white savior movie. Yeah. Like that's exactly what it is. And there's just really no way around it. Like the fact that these people needed Indiana Jones to just come save them and come save the day and all this other stuff is ultimately that it's it's a bad idea and i understand especially the idea of a lot of that stuff the indiana jones movies and everything like that were based on 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 pulp comics from back in the day and that's what pretty much all pulp comics were were just white people going around the world being adventurers and saving all the poor non-white people from their problems uh i mean a, a comic book character that i love and as much as it pains me to say this i Love the movie based on this comic book character. Not because it's good. It's a hot pile of garbage. But I love it is the movie The Phantom with Billy Zane. Yes. I love that movie. I don't know why. I We could be just sitting around and so we go, hey, let's watch The Phantom. And I will be the most excited person in that room. Um, I've seen that way more times than I will ever care to admit. I own that movie. But it's... It's based on a pulp comic character. It's, you know, from back in the day with comic strips and stuff like that. Indiana Jones is very much in in the same type of line as that, where it's some white guy that just goes around the world and just saves all the poor minorities from things. And and I, I say that in the world, they aren't minorities. Indians aren't minorities in their own fucking country. But I'm just saying, like, he goes around and just saves all the poor non white people from their problems. You know, you need the phantom in Africa, you know, to, I don't know, save Africa. And it's all, it's all the same type of shit. And I, so I understand historically where the idea of Indiana Jones comes from. And that's also why his movies took place in the thirties and forties and fifties, depending on Crystal Skull. Yeah. Crystal Skull is in the fifties. So yeah, they all took place in the time in which those comics and those ideas were very prevalent. So I get that in the homage of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg to those things, like I, I, I understand the historical accuracy of their, their homage to those, those pulp comics and those ideas. The problem was, is that the movie still kind of perpetuates that the, the ideas from the thirties, forties and fifties that those comics inherently had in them. I mean, a lot of people like, and this is going to be a weird tangent, but uh, Justin, how did you feel about Tin Tin growing up? Did you ever see any Tin Tin? Man, just a few episodes here and there. But I rem- but I remember liking it growing up. I don't remember yeah. disliking it. Nah, yeah, I thought it was you, an alright show. Did, did you like Did you like some Tin Tin growing up? I never watched it. Okay, well, this might fall a little flat for you then. But <laughs> Tin Tin was based on a comic and everything gigantically racist back in the day from like some Dutch comic artist. Um, if you ever see any of the old comics where he goes to Africa, holy fuck, it gets real bad real fast. And like you wouldn't know it from watching it. You know what I mean? 
or even the new movie that Steven Spielberg did and stuff like that. You would never know that something like Tintin was hugely racist back in the day. Um, but yeah, it just it's but it's all the same type of air, uh, like thing with what I'm saying with this is and that's what Tintin was. Tintin was this little boy that would run around and he was white and he would just save, you know, he'd always just be doing really great things in all these other countries because no one in those countries were capable of solving things like Tintin was. It's still weirdly problematic. And I mean, what Tintin had a movie fucking come out, what, like five years ago? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's, they're all varying degrees of that, that weird issue that is the white savior narrative in Hollywood. And a lot of it is just kind of swept under the rug. It's it, it all goes back to those those comic strips and stuff like that. And I mean, not to say that the, the white savior narrative didn't exist before that either. I'm just saying like a lot of it, especially narratively in, in Hollywood and stuff like that, is just kind of traced back to those things. And it's just unfortunate now that people still feel the need to tell those stories. I mean, I understand also historically speaking in the 80s when Indiana Jones was made or Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom specifically was made. The idea of a white savior movie, there were no negative connotations to that back then. Like those were just movies. That's just what it was. It's just, we have to be fair now and put, put those things into context. Like that, you know, we understand that at the time that wasn't really a thing, but, or it wasn't negatively a thing, but you know, like I said, for, I mean, how many people don't view the help as a negative thing or, you know, any of these other movies we've already talked about. That's exactly what those things are. So it's just, you know, you have to call it what it is. And unfortunately, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is a white savior movie. You know, you can say the other two aren't because they take place in Europe or, you know, and stuff like that. You know, he can't be a white savior in Europe, but they decided in the second one to throw him in India. That's exactly what that movie becomes the instant that happens. So um, let's move to another example. Heather, what's another one for you? Well, the the other one that I thought of in the forefront of my mind, it's more of like a catch-22 situation with the white savior thing because it's a movie that I really like a lot. Um, it's, um, it's the movie A Time to Kill with Matthew McConaughey, Sandra Bullock, Samuel L. Jackson, um, basically about a guy who uh, ends up killing... Um, killing some people who uh, rape his daughter and he is uh, you know, basically he's obviously in a lot of trouble for it. And so he hires a lawyer to defend him in his case and he hires Matthew McConaughey. And the reason it's a catch 22 is because in this instance, they kind of, um, they, they kind of use the white savior thing to their advantage because a big part of this is, you know, he, he kind of asks the question a little bit, like, why did you choose me? Why do you want me to be your lawyer? Uh, Matthew McConaughey does. And then, you know, Samuel L. Jackson is like, because, you know, you, you think like they do, they're going to see your side of it pretty much more than they're going to see mine. You have to make them think the way that I do through your eyes because they're going to listen to you as a white person, basically. And it's a great movie. Honestly, I think it's a really great movie, but, um, but that's, I mean, it kind of has those elements of it because I mean, he has to bring in this white lawyer to come and do his case for them to even listen to it or give it a chance. But it's also that element of, they know that 
you know, the characters know this is our chance of winning if we have this guy. So it's, it's different. Like it's, it's an interesting, um, dynamic of, you know, the white savior thing, but I mean, it's just, it's the rare case where it's also, they're using it to their advantage because they know that that's a thing kind of, you know what I mean? No, I do. I, I, I think that in that instance, it's a smart example of that because the movie itself openly acknowledges that's what it is, but yeah. also within the context of the movie, because they know that the jury and all these other people are going to be racist. Like you said, they use essentially the white savior narrative within the movie to like play against itself. Like the character itself yeah. is openly going, Hey, I need a white savior because they're not going to listen to me because they're racist. Yeah. But, and it's just interesting that they know, I mean, that's how embedded this whole <laughs> white savior thing actually is. The fact that it's just a known thing that that is what you have to do if you want to be heard uh, in the black community with a case like that, you know? No, that's a very good point. And, and that is kind of an interesting uh, version of the white savior story. But yeah, it, uh, it, it, it totally fits. Uh, not as egregious as some of the other examples, I don't think. But yeah, it's definitely one that fits. And and, and just like you guys already said, it just it, it just sort of presents this idea that you had to have this benevolent white person to save the individual. It it just um, whenever you shape a narrative around that, and you know you've got this one white person who's a good person who is a contrast to all these other racist people. It's almost like it balances that out for your white audience. So they can see racism over here, but knowing that there was this good person, that good person is me. I'm not a racist white person. I'm, I'm, I'm the good person. So it just, I feel like it's all, that's just a big part of the design. It's all designed to just make the, uh, the audience that you made this for feel better about themselves watching the movie. So, and then that's sometimes that's just not a good thing though, though that movie uh, is, is again, not a bad film, you know, like all of these are good Indiana Jones, man. I love Indiana Jones. Like all of these are, these are not bad movies guys, but it is important to understand this concept so you can catch it yourself if you're listening to this. So what, what's another one for you then, Justin? Well, one that definitely comes to mind is, um, you know, I'm always talking about how I like Clint Eastwood. And, you know, I, and I do. I like I like a lot of uh, Clint Eastwood directed movies. But he did this one and this one joint in 2008 called Gran Torino. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> oh, Clint. Oh, Clint. So Clint Eastwood is a <laughs> racist Korean war. <laughs> yeah, you made me laugh. Um, is this racist Korean war veteran. And, uh, so what does he <laughs> wind up doing? He's racist. And of course he doesn't like Koreans and Asians and people like that because, you know, oh, I'm a, I'm from the war. So, but what he ultimately winds up doing is he winds up saving these Asian people from this gang that from this, uh, um, 
gang that is trying to kill them. So ultimately he he starts as a racist. He kind of meets these people through circumstances and winds up kind of getting to know them and everything. And in the end he winds up protecting them because there are these other Asians that are trying to kill them. And he winds up protecting them. So good old uh redeemed racist Clint Eastwood. And I mean I mean, couldn't it have been a story where maybe he's saved by some Asians and maybe it changes his worldview or something like that? You know, it's just I mean, you just get after a while, you just see this so much. It just loses the the luster of what the film is trying to say. And I get the argument that, well, what it was really about, Justin, is this guy, he was racist, but he changed. You know, his heart, his heart and heart was softened when he really got to experience the Asian culture and learn about these Asian people. And that's what should be important. But it it, it, but again, this is just this is what we're talking about is the ideas and the mentalities that are perpetuated with these types of stories. It just kind of perpetuates this idea that you can be racist, but you, you can still be this good person or you can still somehow just have this understanding and do good things for people. And it's just not a good thing to promote all the time. It's not a good thing to see all the time in these movies. I'd rather see a racist person humbled because of the deeds of the person of color or the person he's racist against and him just be wrong. And that's it. That that, that sounds like a more believable story than these stories like Gran Torino all the time. Well, I think it's because of how they portrayed him becoming not racist. Like it's one of those things that he didn't become not racist because he realized, Oh, they're people. And you know, they're, you know, they're just like me and they can do good. And some of them can be bad. And it's like, you know, just humanity. He was like, he went to a barbecue at their house or like a, a a party at their house. And he was like, yep, I like their food now. I guess they're all right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. I'm glad I left that part out. Yeah. That is totally what happened. <laughs> like he just goes and he's like, Oh yeah, this food's pretty good. I guess you people are all right. Then like, come the fuck on. Like you said, it would have been more interesting if, you know, like the sun had saved him or something, you know what I mean? Or just anything else. Like it just, yeah, it's, it's just 100%, you know, he's a racist, but then he does. It's, it's all about him doing all the work. You know what I mean? He's the one doing the work to change and like all this other stuff. And it's, it's these other people are just there. They're, they're all placeholders. Yeah. So you could watch him just, you know, altruistically become not a racist because he liked their food. When, and in all honesty, when is that a thing? I know plenty of people that are racist that still eat Chinese food and still eat Mexican food (laughs) and still all this other stuff. They're still racist. (laughs) Yep. Liking another culture's food doesn't make you not racist. It just means you're in America where we have all this food all the time. Like, I mean, fuck, we have fast food versions of all this shit. You can go to a Panda Express or a Taco Bell and get fast food versions of other cultures foods. And it's all shitty, but you can still do it like you can, you know, that doesn't make you not racist. (laughs) I mean, oh. (laughs) <laughs> but I do love those scenes, though. I loved that scene. 
And it's not like I, I, I love that scene for like a terrible reason. I love it because I know what it's meant to do in that movie. Like, so when I say I love that scene, it's not that I genuinely think it's like a great scene or any of this stuff. It's just, I know what that scene's trying to do. And I just love that they chose that scene to be that. I'm just like, get the fuck on. Like, what is this shit? And he's just walking around that house and he's like, oh, they're saying all this. And he's just saying all this racist shit while he's in the house. He's like, oh, you're speaking all that Ching Chong language and all this other yeah. shit. But he's like, man, but this is, you know, some good fucking Korean barbecue. <laughs> like, come on. Like, just because he says some nice things about their culture intermixed with all his racism doesn't make it a fucking turning point in the movie and him as a fucking character. Like, that's not really a scene where he learns a lesson and they act like it is. Because he's, like, saying all this terrible shit. He's like, oh, what is this? Is it cat? Like, he's, like, saying shit like that all the fucking time he's in there. And just terrible fucking shit. But they really do play that scene like, oh, that's where he learned. They're just people like him. No, he was still a terrible racist that entire time. Oh, I'm glad you brought up that movie, Justin. Just because yeah. I really do. Like, I genuinely loved the fact that they thought that scene was a good turning point scene. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I think we should, we, we should rapid fire a few of them here. Um, Because some of these can be all knocked out in the same way. Uh, So the movie's Avatar uh, Dances with Wolves, which I know I love. And I have defended on this podcast, but it is what it is. And the movie Pocahontas by Disney. They're all Mm. the same fucking movie, and they're all white savior movies. Um, You could also, I guess, throw Last Samurai in there. It's not too far off from being the same damn movie, too. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, all, I mean, especially the three I said, those are all specifically the same fucking movie. They really are. One was in 3D, one was hand-drawn, and one had Kevin Costner. That's the only differences in those movies. <laughs> I think they literally used the same script. And in just instead of, like, Native Americans, he just wrote Blue People when he did Avatar. And then, you know, Disney just had some animated animal creatures in it, too. But other than that, they're all the same fucking thing. Uh, yeah, and they all are. And they, they, they are great examples of white savior movies because it's, Oh, these Native Americans or these blue aliens or these, I guess, Native Americans that are animated can't be saved if it wasn't for the white person, even though the white person is the reason they have the problems anyway. Like (laughs) in all those movies, it's the white people come to like destroy their culture. And then it's just the one white person goes, hey, guys, let's not do this, even though I came here with you to do this. Like, oh, fuck off. I still love you, Dances with Wolves. I defend you as an Academy Award winner. Um. Another great example of this would be the, like the movies, uh, was it Freedom Fighters and, uh, or right, whatever the fuck that movie, that Hillary Swank movie and, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's, uh, Dangerous Minds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're the same fucking movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if these white teachers don't go to these, you know, poor, you know, quote unquote ethnic schools, then we, you know, they can't learn anything. So kudos to them for, you know, educating people. And like, it's just one of those sad things where it's like, Right, because, you know, African-American or Hispanic teachers can't teach the same things the same way. Right. You know, they they need a white person to, like, shittily fake rap, or otherwise those kids can't connect <laughs> to them at all. <laughs> Especially when you do have good examples of that. Um, like, Lean on Me is a great example of the same movie, but it's not a white savior movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's the other movie with, uh, oh, what's his name? Where he's like, how do I reach these kids? Um, fuck. That, I feel like, no, I feel like that could be a lot of different movies that I'm thinking of. <laughs> I can't yeah, remember. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to I'm think trying which to one think. it is. 
Oh, come on. The, the, the guy was on Dexter. He was on Battlestar Galactica. Famous actor. Are you talking about he actually is Dexter? That guy? Edward James Olmos is the actor. Oh. Um, oh, what is that movie? I know what you're talking about. Stand and Deliver. Yes, that Fuck. one. Yes, Stand and Deliver by uh, with Edward James Olmos in it. Which is, it, it works because, I mean, it's, it's, it's the same movie as those, but it's a Hispanic man that comes and teaches them. Like, so, yes, you could still do those inspirational movies of people coming in and teaching people and them learning and, you know, changing their lives and everything. And it doesn't always have to be a white savior movie. Although, I mean, kudos to Dangerous Minds, because that's the reason why everybody knows Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. <laughs> that's a great right. song. <laughs> yeah, that song was tight. I mean, that's like the one plus that came out of that movie. And I, I, and I love the music video where Coolio is rapping and stuff. And Michelle Pfeiffer's like, yeah, I'm going to stand here. Look, doing all these hard poses. Yeah, I know. Because right? These are the hard poses I did in the movie to teach these kids. Yeah. <laughs> right. I just love that one where she like turns her chair around backwards and sits in it right across from him. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. <laughs> the 90s were crazy times, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Just in what universe was that like? And I think it's funny, too, because uh, Weird Al Yankovic doesn't need permission to parody anybody's songs. It's one of the protected things with free speech and stuff like that's been ruled on several times. You don't need permission to parody something. And so Weird Al Yankovic does not need permission to parody any songs. But he likes to because he's a nice guy. He likes to reach out to people and go, hey, would it be cool with you if I parodied this song? You know, just because he's nice. And so he, he did Amish Paradise. But apparently there was a mix up with that because he reached out. He couldn't get a hold of Coolio, but he got a hold of his management team or somebody. And they were like, oh, yeah, that's fine. And then he did Amish Paradise. And Coolio was like, wait, what the fuck is this? All this other stuff. Like Coolio was mad about it because he was talking about how it like it diminished the meaning of his song and the message he was trying to portray and all that. And Weirdo Yankovic felt bad because it was just a miscommunication. You know what I mean? He thought Coolio was fine Mm -hmm. with it and all this other stuff. But then I'm thinking about it and looking back on it. I'm like, but Coolio, you had your song in Dangerous Minds. You can't sit there and say it diminished the fucking (laughs) meaning of your song. And it was in that fucking movie. And you even did your music video as a tie-in with the movie. Right. So like, don't, don't sit there and get mad at Weird Al and say it diminishes your song. You're... The the movie your song was tied to diminished it. I mean, <laughs> the music video has Michelle Pfeiffer looking hard. And don't get me wrong. I've got zero problems with Michelle Pfeiffer. I love me some Michelle Pfeiffer. I think she's fantastic. Same. But I'm sorry. She doesn't really look that hard. So right. your music video diminishes your own damn song, bro. Plus, oh. that's one of my the most memorable parodies, I think, of his, at least for me. Oh, that really is up there. His, it, it, yeah. it, it was fucking great. It, and Gangster's Paradise. Both of those are fantastic fucking songs. Yeah. And, but yeah, it's, it just, I just thought that was funny. That was just a really funny thing that he was mad about that. And then I think about it and I look back and I'm like, wait a second, what was that music video then? So, do you guys have any other examples you want to quickly bring up about some stuff? Oh, I do have one more we need to talk about. We'll go into a little depth with, which I think you guys know which one I want to talk about when it comes to white savior stuff. Um, but is there any others real quick that you guys want to just mention as just more examples of what we're talking about? No, not me. 
Um, did, did we did we get hidden figures in there? Oh, did we talk about that one? oh, thank you, Justin. I almost forgot about that one because that's one of my oh, favorites. I thought that's also. the one you were going to talk about. No, okay, no, no. I, the, well, the one I'm going to talk about, I guess I should go is, is To Kill a Mockingbird. I do want to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird. But um, yes, you're 100 percent right, Justin. We need to talk about hidden figures and how or as I like to call that movie, the movie where Kevin Costner ends racism with a baseball bat. Because <laughs> he destroys a sign. Like, if anybody doesn't know, there's a scene in Hidden Figures where uh, Tajay P. Henson's character chews, uh, or is getting chewed out by Kevin Costner. He's like, You always have to go to the bathroom, blah, 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 and all this other stuff. And he's like, What's the deal? And she's like, Well, and she explains to him very passionately. And it's a very good performance by both of them. Once again, it's kind of a narrative we have with this. It's just she very powerfully and eloquently explains to him, like, or yells at him, and it's 100% understood that she has to go all the way to this other building that she has to walk there, and it's super far and all this other stuff, just to use the restroom because there's no uh, colored restrooms in that wing of NASA and all this other stuff. So if it's raining outside, she has to walk in the rain and all this other stuff just to have the human dignity of being able to use the restroom and all this other stuff. And then she ends up by like saying, well, excuse me, and now I have to go to the restroom and like storms out. And she's like talking and talking about real things like she couldn't even use the same coffee, uh, make, you know, couldn't even get from the same coffee maker as everybody else and all this other stuff and all real problems and all this other stuff. And then so Kevin Costner's just standing there and he's listening to her and all this other stuff. And he's like afterwards and he goes and looks at the coffee pots and he's like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Let me go destroy the bathroom sign. And just to, and then afterwards says, now the bathrooms are for everybody. And then lo and behold, all racism at NASA is solved. <laughs> yes. Kevin Costner just being a white savior all the time, huh? Oh, God. He's right up there. With, oh, another example that we vaguely reached, we mentioned last episode, was uh, P.T. Barnum in The Greatest Showman. <laughs> Did you, and it's, it's funny <laughs> that that movie is a white savior movie when P.T. Barnum was not a white savior. P.T. Barnum was a disgusting <laughs> human being. He exploited people that were disfigured or had any sort of any disabilities of anything. He fucking hated anybody that wasn't white unless you were a quote unquote freak to him. If you were not white and a freak, you had value to you because then he could exploit you and make money off of you. But if you were a black person that was just normal, you meant nothing to him. You were just meant to be cheap labor and nothing else. And not even valid enough to spend your money going to his circuses. But, uh, sorry. I, I get really fired up anytime anybody mentions The Greatest Showman. Um, but yes. Uh, and the sad thing is, is, for all we know, what if that actually happened in real life? What if this guy actually heard this story and went and fucking destroyed the signs and all this other stuff and was like, you know what? No, fuck all this shit. Like, these people are helping us get to the moon. We're all in the same game. We are all Americans. This is how it's supposed to be. And that legitimately could be what happened. But the second I see that in a movie playing out like it did, all I feel like is, oh, that's some white savior bullshit. Because it just comes across so goddamn hokey. It just seems like a weird over-the-top way of just going, man, look how this person stopped racism. Like, that's just how it comes across when I see it in a movie. Even if, like I said, that could have been the real story. Who knows? Well, I was just going to add, well, when it when it comes to hidden figures, I know for a fact that that character, that person, I believe was just made up for the movie. 
Oh, like, well, I believe go. that I believe that that character, that 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 person, like if I'm not mistaken, that that wasn't even like a, a guy that existed. And that whole part where uh, Taraji P. Hemsons character gets to watch the launch from the control room. Nope, didn't happen. She had to go to a designated area for black people to watch it. They didn't let her watch it in the control room. And the Kevin Cosner character was totally added. And if I'm not mistaken, the filmmaker later said, well, I mean, I, I just... I, you you got to have black people doing the right thing and you got to have white people doing the right thing, too. And I just don't understand what is so wrong with that. That's kind of wait. what wait. the creators said. So wait, you're saying the director of this movie and the writer, the people that made this movie went out of their way to just make it white savior, even though the, essentially the whole story with it is completely untrue. That's a whole new level of shit. Yeah, they added a white savior. They added one because they felt there's got to be a white person doing the right thing, which I mean, is just awful. You know, I mean, that just goes to show you what I mean. So this is an example that's really egregious, like that this person was added into this story. These scenes were added just so you could have that for the white audience. It was exactly for that reason. And I think the the, the story on its own is interesting enough because before this movie, I didn't even know that there were these three black women that were instrumental in NASA being able to launch. I didn't know about this story at all. And that was one of the reasons why I went to see this movie was because I was fascinated by that story. But again, to find out that even though this is a fascinating story and it does have some good performances, but to find out that this person was added because we quote unquote need a white person doing the right thing. It's just, you know, you just can't help but shake your head when you read that kind of stuff. Well, especially when the movie is about these three women that are instrumental in getting us to the moon, like they were already disrespected enough in their lifetime with everything that was happening. And then to me, you add to that by saying your actual story wasn't good enough. We have to change your story to make sure white people look better for your story. Even though during your story, white people gave no shits about you. Mm -hmm. Especially if she wasn't even like they weren't even allowed in the control room afterwards and all this other stuff. That's just even more egregious that you were willing to then show them in the movie in the control room. Like, fuck. Like, yeah, it's like dishonoring the situation almost. Yeah. I mean, it's it's terrible. The movie is about them being the unspoken heroes because they were discriminated against. And in turn, you're diminishing the, what they went through just to make sure your movie's got a happier tone to it. Like you're still hiding parts of these hidden figures. See, I already thought this movie was bad. I didn't know it was that bad. Fuck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, man. And when I heard about that, I was just like, damn dude. And what's crazy is how, 
much more powerful would that movie have been if you saw it the way it actually happened like Mm -hmm. she persevered did all of these things and then they said no blackie you're gonna have to go back to your desk or whatever it is and watch the launch from there and if it ended on kind of this powerful note of look how awesome she was but look how unappreciated he is those are the kinds of attitudes yes that's uncomfortable yes that may not be the great white ending but that's the kind of ending that really gets people thinking that's the kind of ending that invokes conversation that's the kind of ending that's going to change somebody and make somebody go damn dude look how she was treated despite everything she did that's what really makes people confront that and look at it but when you have kevin cosner do a Uh, you know, do a Babe Ruth to a bathroom sign, it takes away from that potential message. That's why something like Black Klansman was so powerful was because it ended saying, look, racism is not over. It's happening with all this stuff that happened back then. Guess what's happening right now? Let me show you some current footage of this happening right now. And that it, it just that that's a punch in the gut, but it's a punch in the gut we need, especially Especially in today's times. Yeah. But you're absolutely right, Justin, because it's movies like this, unfortunately, frame the conversations about what happened like incorrectly. You know, when you look at the impact that, say, something like Hidden Figures could have had if it had been more authentic to the actual story and talked about the problems that these people still faced and all this other stuff. And that's a line of dialogue that can invoke change. Whereas, when you get the ending the movie actually gives you, it's just like, yep, look, it's all fixed. Nothing to talk about now. Yeah. And then when you have a screenwriter or a director or anybody justifying getting going, man, I don't see what the problem is. I mean, a white person does the right thing. A black person does the right thing. Who cares? As long as somebody does the right thing, right? Isn't that what we want? We just want the feel good moment. Come on, man. Let me feel good. But that's. That in and of itself, the fact that the people who created it didn't see that that was a problem is a problem in and of itself. So, yeah. Well, yeah, Yeah. because you want. Yeah, that is what everybody wants. Everybody wants white people and black people and Hispanic people and everybody to do the right thing. Yes, everybody wants that. But until that is what it is, it's disingenuous to say and to just artificially say that that's what it is. You know, like, (laughs) yeah, if white people didn't do the right thing in that story in real life, then it is okay to tell that story that they didn't like that is okay. Like, because it's the truth. Like, if it's the truth, then fucking tell the story, because then you always have the morality of saying I told the truth. I didn't tell you what you wanted to hear. I didn't tell you what, you know, these other people wanted you to hear. I didn't tell you what would make you feel better. I told you how it actually was. And if that made you feel uncomfortable or made you feel bad, good, because that's how we get change. That's how things progress is you, you know, you find out the truth, feel bad about it, and you work to change it. Mm-hmm. Man, that movie's even more fucked up than I thought it was. I already thought it yeah. was bad. <laughs> like, that's the sad thing is it just went from, man, it's pretty bad to holy fuck, it's way worse than I thought. See, that's why I wanted to do this episode. We get to talk about things like this and learn. 
Um, so one movie I wanted to talk about also with this, and this is the final one, I guess, for this is To Kill a Mockingbird, because I did see this show up on a lot of lists. And I don't know if it necessarily belongs on that list, just in the regard of a when the movie when when the book was written, when the movie was made and all this other stuff, I mean, it's still black and white and everything like that, that honestly, at the time, the idea of having a black lawyer was, you know, inconceivable. So I was wondering if you guys also think that this, whether or not this movie does belong in the white savior category. Cause I think on that one, and maybe it is me reaching for a technicality, if you will, is why that movie wouldn't fall into that. Just because at that time that would have been insanely authentic to how it was. Um, but I, I also do see where, you know, a lot of people would consider that it's, you know, a black man is on trial unjustly and he needs a white lawyer to come argue for the truth because, you know, without a white lawyer you know, or some white person to save him, he doesn't stand a chance, which I guess, which is authentic to the times. It didn't matter that the guy had a white lawyer, <laughs> you know, he, he still was found guilty and still murdered, um, which I, which I do credit that movie. At least it was still authentic to all that stuff. And I say the movie, the book, it, it's the same too, but at least it, that way it was authentic. If they had gone the hidden figures route, the jury would have just changed all their minds and it would have been found innocent because, you know, we had to make <laughs> sure the white people look good too. Right. God, I, I, I'm never going to get over that. I just, <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> I just, wow. That's just going to be my thought just all the time when I'm going to say things like, well, you could have gone the hidden figures route and just made everybody look good anyway. <laughs> Like, fuck, what if the director of The Hidden Figures, like, did a movie about the KKK? Would he feel morally obligated to oh make the KKK look, bad, like, look good, too? One man single-handedly disbanded the KKK. Yeah, something like that. Just, or just something like that. Like, would you just want to make them, like, you know, they might have all been racist, but you know what? They, you know, they loved their children and read to them after, you know, after they did a lynching. They would go, always go home and read their children a bedtime story. See, they're good people, too. Like, fuck off. God, I just, I can't believe that was a thought process still. Like, oh man, I say that, yet we're talking about even newer examples of White Savior movies even since that movie came out. But still, oh my God, I'm never going to get over this ever. Justin, you broke me. <laughs> That's hard to do. I, you broke that gem of a movie, Hidden Figures, for me more so than it was already broken. I say I just saved you, dude. I'm your black savior. Yeah. You're, you're <laughs> sitting over there like fucking you. black Jesus right now. <laughs> it's just it blows my mind. I already thought that movie was bad. And I just I didn't even know. I had no idea how bad it actually was. See, and it once again yeah, it, it once again goes into what we were talking about last week with, with bad education that it's all these movies based on true stories and shit like that, you have to be careful with them. You really do. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say I do agree on your point about um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, I I honestly don't think that it should be on this list because you're right. I think during that time that that's accurate to what it would have had to be. Um, So I agree. I don't think that it should be on this list. Yeah, that's a it's a tough one, man, because, uh, yes, I I do see that it has the, the ingredients are there. But when you watch it. I don't I don't I just don't feel that it ever felt to me like they were trying to say, look, the good white man. And then, yeah, like the result was the guy wasn't saved. 
in that way. So it, this is just, uh, I, I mean, I get that. Yes, you have a white protagonist trying to help a black person and then you have other racist people and he's and he's um lawyering for the truth i mean i get the ingredients i get it i I guess i could see how someone could interpret it as that but man honestly until you said it this was not even on my mind as one of them and i've seen this movie several times so i guess it just it didn't give me those feelings even though it had some of those ingredients like you said I mean, to me, the reason why it just doesn't scream white savior to me is to me, that's just, it's so authentic to the time in which the book was written and it, that it's about, you know, yeah, it's just, that's it's, who. it's just so authentic to that, that I just don't see it like that, you know, I don't know. And that's, and I guess that's always up for the debate with it that, you know, if, if somebody were to come out to me and just say, look, I think To Kill a Mockingbird is a white savior movie. I can't tell them they're wrong. You know, I could just. I, I would 100% see where they're coming from. I would just, you know, say why I don't think it is. But if they were like, nope, I still think it is. I'm not going to be like, well, you're wrong. Like, it's, yeah, it's I can see where anybody would say that. I just I to me, like I said, I never thought it was either until, like I said, I started seeing it on all these lists. And there are so many more that we haven't brought up either, like Lawrence of Arabia. Or any of these other movies. Like, there's a ton more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's a ton more white savior movies out there, you know. And it's just like I said, it's just when I was looking up all these examples, because like I said, I never thought of Indiana Jones that way until I saw it on a list. And then I was like, fuck, it is. Damn it. You know, it's just like I said, every list I wa- looked up of just white savior movies, To Kill a Mockingbird was on every one of their lists. And some of them had you know, little paragraphs to accompany him. Some of them just were lists. They were literally just lists of movies. Um, so I, you know, I, it's not like I could see their position on it or whatever, but it's just one of those things that to me, I, I thought that that was a little bit of a harder push just because like I said, for the time period, I don't know what else there could have been for it. Yeah. That's understandable, man. I mean, uh, because it's not like you could have had a black lawyer at that time in the South. On top of that. Yeah. In not the in the South. Not, yeah, not, not. So I, I get where you're coming from with that. And maybe that's why it didn't give me that vibe because that, that's what I would have believed would have had to have happened. You know, I, I get where you're coming from with that for sure. And like I said, he didn't save the guy. He might have morally been right, but he still didn't save the guy. So any other thoughts on some white savior stuff before we move on to the movie Blind Spotting? No, sir. No. All right. So let's talk about the movie Blind Spotting, which I don't know how long we're going to go on this. So just strap in and go for a ride with us, even though it's already been a long one as it is. Um, I guess we can do some real quick non-spoilers, give our recommendations and then go into spoilers with it. But if anybody doesn't know, this movie is uh, a Davi, uh, Davi Diggs movie. Uh, people might know him from he's been in a couple of things, but most famously he played uh Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson in the play Hamilton. Um, but he, that was, you know, kind of his big break. And then he's been appearing in a lot of stuff since then. He's was on the TV show blackish and uh, he's been in some other things. It's just all blinking on me right now. Um, but yes, this was him and his good friend uh, who they, and they did grow up together. Uh, what's his name? Heather Raphael. What? Casal. Yeah. See, I knew it was something like that. Uh, I was thinking Costas. I don't know why. That's just what I was picturing in my head. 
And that's why I threw it to you because I knew I was wrong. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead and get into that then. Uh, so uh, we started with Jason last time. So Heather, uh, what's a non-spoiler review for this movie? Um, well, in a nutshell, for me, this movie is probably the best movie that I've seen in a long time. Uh, I, and not even just the subject matter of it and how relevant it is to today and everything, but just it's super creative. Um, just they they do a lot of really interesting things with it. Like um, the storytelling perspective is really cool. Um, they just have excellent performances, which the fact that um, Davy Diggs and Raphael Casal wrote this movie and also starred in it, like the chemistry of the two of them together, it feels like they've been best friends for forever. And that made it a lot more authentic and genuine. And I really liked their dynamic together and how they played off of each other in these roles. Um, and they do a lot of, um, or they do some, some scenes that are really cool where they kind of add a little bit of like spoken word, um, freestyle stuff in it into some of the scenes, which my understanding is doing that for some of the bigger scenes, uh, is due to just trying to, um, trying to say a lot about something important and trying to say it in a condensed amount of time just to get across how major it is. And that was their best way that they could do that. So um, it's very interesting and it's a really creative artistic thing to add into a movie. I've never seen that in a movie before and I thought it was really awesome. But again, like I've mentioned before, I love spoken word. So for me, I was all about it. Um, yeah, I just think it was very detailed um, in how they told a lot of the parts of the story uh, or just the details they wanted to be emphasized were definitely emphasized for the most part. Um, and yeah, it's just it's a super important movie um, just about racial profiling in general and just, you know, not taking somebody at face value and um, excellent performances. Loved everything about it honestly this movie is really honestly it is one of the best movies i've seen in a long time justin what about you um yeah so after all of that talk about white savior movies and stuff like that and kind of talking about suggesting movies that have a, a little bit more of a balance in in when it comes to racial issues and something that kind of looks at race from a different lens and kind of gives you uh, a, a different but more accurate, more truthful feeling perspective. And um, I'm happy to report that I think that this is a movie that does that. This this movie is about a lot of things. It's about racism. It's about gentrification. It's about, you, you know, our personal sense of identity, but also how others see us. And that's kind of what this whole thing is about. And not to say too much, I don't want to elaborate too much on the non-spoiler, but yeah, this has excellent performances. It was very thoughtful. Um, the, the pacing is great. A lot of the Oakland backdrops that they had and the settings and the set pieces that they have in this movie, there's just some 
some really great scenery that that that, that just really uh, encapsulates what Oakland is and what and, and like there are just so many just like beautiful shots in the movie not like maybe from a technical oh the camera was the grip was over here or the you know n- not nothing technically crazy like that but just picturesque just very colorful very beautiful scenes and like you guys uh or like heather spoke about um davi diggs this is the first movie that i've seen him in i've always known him but i hadn't seen um any of his films and i knew that he had starred in hamilton and everything i knew that but i had not seen um, any of his films until this one. And man, what a performance this was. This was, I mean, such a moving performance by him, his mannerisms, yeah. his just everything, just from what the character experiences and how he's dealing with that internally and how that explodes uh, towards the end. Like all of this is Put, he does so well. His portrayal of the the many different levels of this character is great. And alongside him, uh, Rafael Casal, man, this guy did great too, man. I thought that he was excellent in this. He was a great supporting character. Um, th- there were portions of the film where I thought he really stole scenes, where he really just made the scene what it was so and now hearing that they both grew up together as friends well then no wonder no wonder that chemistry felt so authentic no wonder it was so effective that makes a lot of sense to me knowing that they actually uh grew up together because so that definitely helped but yeah this is a movie that i definitely recommend if you're looking for something with uh, something about race but it doesn't have all these manufactured voices or kind of tells a story for a market rather than really trying to tell the story for what it is. This is one of the movies that you need to broaden your horizons with if you haven't seen it. Um, Yeah, like I was familiar with W. Diggs um, from the regard of I've been listening to the Hamilton soundtrack ever since it came out. Uh, So I was very familiar with his rapping style and stuff like that. And uh, with Rafael Casal, like we talked about with Bad Education, uh, I knew him from the reboot of Are You Afraid of the Dark, where he played the Top Hat Man. And once again, it's fantastic. You should go see it. Um, but in this movie, like I, I vaguely knew this movie from when it came out. And it's kind of an understatement to say this movie is like prophetic. I think that's how you say the word. I don't know. I suck at saying words if you yeah, haven't figured that no, out. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, with nowadays times, considering the movie came out almost two years ago this July, and yeah, you could say this movie was made last week, and it would just feel just as relevant as it did like then, and mm-hmm. which is not necessarily a good thing that we haven't progressed in two years. But it's it's crazy how much, like I said, watching this movie now with what's going on in our country, it it's just still so powerful and. I really like what Justin was saying with how picturesque some of the, the camera work is in this movie. Like there's a scene where they're driving a, a moving ve- a moving truck through, uh, through Oakland and just the way that they frame the houses to where you get some aspects of old Oakland and 
aspects of gentrified Oakland all at the same time, just by, you know, just with how in, in just one scene with them just driving, like I said, driving a truck and just the way they frame the camera and stuff like that. And the way they picture these houses and everything like that, it's incredibly like awe-inspiring with how they were able to like really capture that. And also like, you know, you could tell that like, especially since they wrote the movie, how, how much a lot of that stuff was, was personal to them when it came to the gentrification of Oakland and, you know, all these things, which is a big thing at the beginning of the movie where it's what this, this place called Quickway, which was like a burger joint in Oakland and all this other stuff, but then they gentrified (laughs) it and it's now like vegan options and all this other stuff. And, you know, you have to specify that you want meat on a burger. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and stuff like that and how it's just kind of broken like what they knew the world to be you know to them it was just quick way it was just a place you go you get a burger and eat it and now because of gentrification you have to go there and specifically order a burger that you would think would just exist and be the normal you know and how they have to you know that change the way they operate with that and even so much so that they've got like a friend who you know one of his hustles is the fact that he's also an uber driver you know, so on top of everything else they're doing, it's like, oh, and he's an Uber driver. And it's just showing that the way people are approaching things and the way gentrification, everything like that is also just changing these neighborhoods and stuff like that. And like you really felt like that was a, you know, authentically big deal to them that like the changing of Oakland. Oh, that was a water bottle. Um, The authentic like them changing, like the changing of Oakland was authentically affecting those characters because you know their own sense of community and their own sense of home and all this other stuff like those ideas were being challenged on top of all the other stuff that they were dealing with in the movie that's just one thing i really thought was like really powerful within that movie is just even the little things of the burger joint down the street is now no longer the burger joint down the street it's now something else and you know, with Raphael's character, he he really, you know, like some of those scenes where he's combating his own sense of identity and whilst also dealing with the changes of identity in the community in which he grew up in. And I thought that that was like one of the, the really powerful things in this movie was how both him and David's, uh, David, uh, David Diggs characters both tackled with what their sense of identity was while everything else was changing around them. And how powerful that that sentiment can be. Um, and on top of that, everything else, just like this movie's fucking great. Like just to boil it down real quick, it's a fucking great movie. Um, so let's go ahead and do recommendations and scores. Uh, Justin, what's your recommendation and score? Uh, yeah. So if it's not obvious by now, um, uh, I highly recommend this film. Um, th- this is definitely one kind of like what uh, Sterling was saying, very prophetic in the sense that right now with all of the issues going on in the world and race talks and things like that, this is one of those movies that really gives you in a very entertaining and non-preachy way, a way of looking at all of these things that can happen within a community like like we talked about there's there's issues of gentrification and how that affects the people you there 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 is um 
uh, issues with police in this film. There's the whole identity of black and white and even white privilege is, is talked about even in this and there's a perspective of that given in this and there's um yeah and then of course there's just the whole thing about racial profiling like heather talked about so there's so much to unpack here but it's done in such an entertaining way it's well acted it's beautifully shot and it's got great pertinent pertinent messages for today so i mean what more could you ask for um i'm this is definitely an a i mean they they did almost just everything right here it was tough to really find a lot of flaws with this so um i'm going to give this 93 yeah i think that's a really good score for this i think that's a really high score 93 um man what to do without spoiling I really should think of these before we go. Uh, we'll go 93 $10 green juices that are supposed to be healthy for your body out of a hundred. Heather, what about you? Yeah. 100% recommend this movie. It's, um, and my understanding too, from research I did on it is this movie was 10 years in the making. Like it took them 10 years to make this movie. The fact that, this is something so prevalent 10 years beyond when they initially wrote this movie is insane, but it just shows um, how important it is to watch this movie. Um, and I just also love that it really is. It's so these, these guys are so relatable in the sense of they're everyday guys that are just kind of, rolling with the punches. They're just like, this is life. This is what happens. And this is how we deal with it. And just a big part of it is their friendship sort of getting each other through a lot of the stuff and using their humor to get through a lot of the things and cope with what's happening in the world around them. And it's awesome to see that because it's very, um, it makes it very genuine and it feels so very real to them personally. Um, but yeah, the acting, everything about this, the story, it's very artistic. It's very creative. It's really good. I'm going to give it, um, I'm going to give it 95, um, almost new hair straighteners being sold out of a hundred. So for me, yeah, I recommend it. Definitely. Like it's, it's a must see movie. I think even more so now early, like two years after it came out, it's even more must see now. And like what Justin was saying, it, it, it covers so many things like gentrification, racial profiling and police brutality. While also on top of that, just also talking about just getting through your own life. And in doing so, it, it didn't really ever pull any punches, but at the same time, I don't want to say that it wasn't preachy. I, I, and I know that's what Justin said, but to me, it just, it just focused on the aspects of it that mattered within their lives. So instead of it being a story that's broad about all these subjects, it approaches all these subjects in a very specific manner that focuses on the lives of these characters. And also through that, the lives of the people that wrote it. So while it does touch on all these issues, it's a very personal story for them whilst they tell that story. And to me, that just makes it that much more powerful, especially, I guess, because I didn't know that it was, you know, 10 years in the making or anything like that. So I'm talking about how. 
you know, poignant it is two years after it came out. It's scary how poignant it is 10 years after they started like trying to get this done. Like that's terrifying that it's just as relevant as it was 10 years ago. And I'm sure that they modernized it or, you know, they adapted some of it to be newer, but like in general, the concept of it all, like, fuck, the fact that it's 10 years in the making is really kind of eerily eye-opening to a lot of these issues still. But I definitely 100% recommend this movie. I'm going to split the difference for you guys. 94 fuck vegan burgers out of 100. (laughs) So with that, we'll go into spoilers. So, I mean, I don't necessarily want to say much in this section just because, fuck, I love how this movie, like, just watching it, not knowing much. Like, I saw trailers for this movie two years ago. And by that, I mean, I probably saw a trailer two years ago for this movie. So being, I think, a little blind to this movie made it that much better. So I don't even know how much I want myself to get into with saying things that are spoilery. Um, I will say this, like those scenes where, I mean, I thought one of the scenes that I, I, I really enjoyed was, was Raphael's character having that, you know, the state of California on his neck with the star on Oakland. And this guy <laughs> yeah. moved down from like Washington and he'd been there for two years. He's like, oh, I finally feel like home. And so he had the same tattoo and it just mm-hmm. really hurt Raphael's character that this fucker had the same thing he did when he grew up there his whole yeah. life. And but I mean, it was one of those things where it really made him tackle his own identity, too. And that's what I was bringing up earlier with his identity issues and things like that, where it really kind of opened up his eyes to everything like of what his identity is when there are so many people around him, especially when it comes to all these people that are moving into the area that are gentrifying and stuff like that are stealing those aspects of his culture where in turn, he's also accused in the movie or, or he feels in the movie like he's more or less worried that he's like a culture for ultra within himself because that's the only culture yeah. he's known growing up. Like you grew up in the same neighborhood. So, I mean, he felt the same thing that a lot of these other people, these black people like felt and believed and all the social because he grew up around them. But in, in turn, does, was he appropriating their culture because, you know, just because he was white, but that's all he knew, you know? And so he had, a lot of identity issues with himself with that. And I loved Davi Diggs character, like with his own identity issues of, yeah, he was a felon now and all this other stuff. And it's, is that all he's going to be for the rest of his life? Is he just a black felon now for the rest of his life? Is that all he's ever going to be viewed as? And I love how a lot of those issues, the way they bring it up were like whenever the, the man was shot by the cop where the cops in his dress uniform and it's, you know, a very, you know, powerful picture of him in his uniform and just looking very, you know, like, oh, I'm a very model cop. And then when they show the black man, it's, oh, him in a jumpsuit. Mm-hmm. Like they, can't, they can't get a picture of him that's just automatically not black felon. It's, you know, that just became the man's identity. They stripped him of everything else and like him struggling with having witnessed that shooting and all this other stuff, like him then constantly wondering is that going to be his identity for the rest of his life? Like no matter what he does, if something happens, is he just then going to be known as the black felon? And I thought the way that they, they talked about it and the way they addressed those things in this movie were just so incredibly powerful and so incredibly eye opening that like those aspects of things like are still relevant now, like with the George Floyd thing and even like Trayvon Martin a few years ago, like, 
those were still some of the same things that were happening then. It's, you know, well, let's go and find all the bad things Trayvon Martin ever did in his life to justify him being killed in this situation that had nothing to do with those other aspects of his life. Like, you know, whether or not somebody was a criminal at some point in their life doesn't mean that afterwards that that's all they are. And when you're willing to always reduce people to that, to that base level of something like that, you're trying to strip away the humanity of it all just to justify, you know, them being murdered or them being killed in in a situation like that to make yourself feel better and to help justify the actions of the people that did it. And this is something I've, I was wondering whether or not I would, I would say, but I think it fits. And so I want to say it. It's the same thing that the Nazis did with Jewish people. You would dehumanize Jewish people. So it was easier for Nazis to justify in their own minds of just killing them when they were in concentration camps and stuff like that. That's the, that, that's the mentality and the reason why people do that. When you dehumanize a group of people or just people in general just to justify terrible actions, the whole point of that is to just, you know, to make the people that did the terrible things like feel better about it. Like you're not killing a person, you're killing a convict. You're killing a felon. You're killing a criminal. Not that you're killing a person. It's the same mindset and it's the same philosophy. And that's why people throughout our history have done that. It's the same reason why you would dehumanize people when it came to slavery. It's a lot easier to justify slavery when they're not thinking of them as people or at the same level as themselves. Because then you have to actually try to rationalize owning somebody that is the same as you on all levels, except your skin color is different. And that's a harder rationalization. So what do you do? You minimize it. They're not the same as you. They're not as smart. They're not this. They're not that. So they're not the same as you. So it's easier to justify terrible actions. And I think the way this movie portrayed that specifically was incredibly, incredibly powerful. That's all I'm going to say about it. Um, one of you two go. I don't know whose turn it's supposed to be. I need to keep track of this better because I always alternate between you two. And I lose track of it when we end up doing these things where we go back and forth so much. Uh, I'll go. Um, uh, no, like I, I think that, uh, man, where to begin with this movie? Because there's so much stuff. I guess just I'll just talk about a few favorite scenes and just kind of see where that takes me. But uh, what I loved about this movie is that it's kind of like what uh, Sterling was talking about with the identity and how you see yourself, how you see others. And I do think that there is this common theme in it that in a way, everybody has blind spots. You know, everybody kind of has a tendency. And I forget what the test was, what that psychological test was called in the movie but where well they called it the face face yeah okay the the face face yeah we'll go with that because yeah that's what one of the characters called it but this idea but the idea that when you look at this picture you can either see a vase or you can see two faces but you can't see both at the same time there's a natural tendency to see something one way and then you really have to look at it again or on that second look or once you're aware of what else is there then you can see both pictures and if you think about it that in a nutshell is the racism problem that's the problem like you have 
a certain part of the community. I mean, even when I think about just the argument of racism versus, you know, there is systemic racism or there's not systemic racism. The people normally arguing against it are saying, I can't see it. I don't see it. I don't see that other face. I don't see that aspect of it. That's not what I see. Um, so so there's even kind of a blind spot when it comes to that. Uh, th- th- there's blind spots on the other side of it sometimes, too, where sometimes a person is like, oh, you disagree with this stance. You must be a racist person. I don't think that's always the case. but. Sometimes we have a blind spot when it comes to these issues. And like this movie plays those things out so perfectly within the characters like David Diggs's character. Like you were saying, Sterling, he's, you know, he's got three days and his um, and, and, and his time. Um, wait, was it three days? I hope that's right. I yeah, the movie starts, three he's got three days left on probation. Yeah, three. Yeah, okay, cool. I wanted to make sure I got that right. So, yes, he he had three days left on his probation, but this whole time it's about him, you know, trying to figure out is that what he is? Is he just going to be a black convict? Is that his identity? Is that what he is? And the other characters, namely his ex girlfriend and uh, Casal's character, that's. They still see him as that same person. One, the the ex girlfriend can't really see past that fight that he had that led to his probation and everything, and led to his jail time. His friend, as he gets out, still thinks that he's kind of this same person, unchanged and everything like that. But there's this other side that even his best friend is not seeing. Uh, when it comes to our, you know, our uh, Casal, his character, and him being white and kind of having this sense of identity, but the people that are coming in the town and the, the the gentrified people, when he goes to that party, they blind spot him. You know, they assume that he is this one type of white person uh, and really that's not him at all. Or they assume that he is kind of this white person quote unquote acting black or acting however you want to say it. And he's acting out that way, but that's not really who he is. So there are blind spots there. And like, that's kind of what this movie is. The gentrification, what I loved about that too, was that sometimes when they, they were movers. So sometimes when they went into these homes, you would see these things uh, or these pictures of the people who used to live there. And you see all these black people that used to live in these homes or all these uh, Hispanic people, these other people that used to live there. And this guy, guy i remember that photographer guy who was hanging up pictures of people that used to live there or he put up a picture of a tree and he was like yeah i put this tree in the picture here it overhangs it because this tree used to be there you know i want to remind them that this was a part of this too that this is the part that we're destroying and it's all kind of encapsulates this message of what gentrification does to those poor communities it pushes them out and even though on one side of it when we look at the picture when we look at the vase version of the picture we're seeing an area get 
improved, right? We're seeing improved housing. These people are moving in. Seems like a good thing. But when you look at both pictures, the these people, these poor people who can't handle those new property values are getting pushed out and the identity of the town is also being pushed out. And that brings real struggle. So like, and it all kind of goes together because David Diggs's character, he was so like, so like moved emotionally when he saw that boy get killed and he was seeing all these things like seeing these black men in graves and wondering is that going to be me and was legitimately scared and everything like that and what added to that was him seeing these black families I remember when they were in a house and he was looking at this photo album and he saw all these black people that used to live there and they were now being put you know being they had to move out and it's almost like he is seeing the systemic or the systematic destruction of his people. They're being pushed out of their communities into places that are worse. They're being killed on the streets by police. They're being mistaken and looked at in the media as criminals, and that's all they'll ever be. They're being blind spotted left and right, and he's seeing how all of this is coming together, and so when he explodes, when he he faces that cop at the end, all of that just kind of comes together. And so that it just leads to some really powerful scenes. And the last thing I'll say is one scene that was especially powerful to me was the argument that David Digg, Diggs has with uh, um, Cassell's character whenever they are facing each other and um, and uh Raphael Cassell has that fight with that guy and then they get pulled off or whatever, a, a worse, a really a horrible situation that, that could have been yeah. worse, but they escape it. And so they're having this argument, man. And that was such a great argument to me. It was really yeah. a turning point in the movie for me too, because up until that time, I really thought that uh, Raphael Casal was still in the movie. I really thought that he was kind of still in this thing. And I was like, man, dude, like, I, I mean, he's still in this movie, but should he, you know, should he be taking this thing? But it was almost like at that point in the movie, a baton was handed off to Davi Diggs. And then Diggs definitely carries it the last half. But I thought right there, there was a baton moment. And what was great about that argument was that he was saying, look, man, you are, and I won't say the N word just out of respect for our part. We try not to have that on here, but so I won't say it because the actor said it, but, but that, that part where they were talking about the whole N word conversation. And so David Diggs calls him the N word. And he says, now you say, now you uh, call, now you say it, you, you call me that. And he, and then uh Casal is like, man, dude, I, I he's like, man, I, I can't, I'm not going to say that, man. You know, I'm not going to say that. And he's like, well, why won't you say it? And it, and it brings out this whole conversation. And the point of the conversation was, is look, you're doing all of these things. Like there are no consequences, but there are going to be consequences for me. You know, this is my last day on parole. I'm trying to get off of this thing, but 
if the cops come and they see me and you, who are they going to blame this on? Who are they going to look at? And it was in that moment he made that character realize that, look, dude, even though, yes, you are from the streets and from the hood and you act this way, you still have white privilege. You still have it. If the cops come, they're still going to look at me and not you. The 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 things that happen to me yeah. are still not going to happen to you. So as much as you'd like to think that you understand, you really don't. And then it was, it was ironic because... Cassell's character was like, man, dude, he uh, look at you, man. You're a big black dude with braids from Oakland, man. Nobody is mistaking your identity. Nobody is mistaking you. And like he was envious of him because people look at him and know what he is. But ironically, that's not true either. You know what they look at him and see is not all of who he is either. So that scene is just so powerful to me because everything was in it. The blind spotting, the mistaken identity, the white privilege, the, the, the use of the N word, the, the, all of that was in that one scene. So I just can't say enough how powerful that scene was. Heather, what about you? Yeah, I mean, for me too, that was probably one of my favorite scenes just because it was so profound and just so well done. Like it, it is, it's, it's that sense of saying like, listen, I've been trying to change all of these things and I've been trying to defy everything that people are labeling me as and it doesn't seem to be doing anything when in reality, the person they think I am is the person that you're being right now. You're the one carrying a gun. You're the one acting like a criminal and pulling a gun out on people and doing all these things. And like, yeah, it's just, it, it was powerful. Um, yeah. It was a really, really great way to relate it to, to their situation and just to kind of, yeah, it really, it just, it, it was so good. It was really, really good. Um, but yeah, it just, I, I loved that scene. And then I really enjoyed the, um, the scene. Um, well, I mean, I, I enjoyed obviously like the last scene too. And, and Sterling, I do kind I, I kind of agree with you on the sense of when you don't know what to expect from this movie, it, it it's more impacting and more impactful, which sucks because I want to talk about this movie all day. I love this movie, <laughs> but there are certain things that I think, yeah, we kind of should reserve it for people just because of how important this movie is. I do agree with you. There's just some things that it's going to it's going to be better and more impactful and make more sense when you just see the things that happen in this movie. But yeah, I mean, and then there's like, yeah, there's this altercation that happens, um, you know, towards the end and everything, because like we said, you know, he, he witnesses a cop, um, who kills somebody. He kills a black man that's running from him. And, um, the way that David Diggs portrays just witnessing that, I mean, He looks so terrified, you know, and he just looks so appalled at what just happened. And it's, it's moving because you can just, and then throughout the film, you just see, he keeps having these, these nightmares and these things that he's seeing uh, and showing how it's really affecting him. And, um, those scenes were very powerful, I think. And yeah, it's just... I, I just love, I love how 
no matter the differences and how they see each other, it's kind of like they know each other and they have each other's backs no matter what. And they, they're kind of the thing that's holding the other up in some points as crazy as Raphael Casal's character is as very volatile and whatever, like maniac of a person that he is, you know, um, he kind of holds down Davy Diggs when he needs somebody to kind of feel like, you know, I'm on your side or I get you. And Davy Diggs is kind of that for him too, where, you know, he's like, I accept you for who you are and I, I see you for who you are. And I know that you're not just pretending and that this is who you are and all these things. So it's, it's really, really well done. And there is a scene towards, well, it's, it's basically at the end and I'm not going to really, it, it's during the altercation that, Dovey Diggs has with the police officer and all of this. And I'm not going to say all of what's mentioned, but there is one part that I really wanted to talk about because it was probably one of the most chilling things for me was, um, you know, they're having this altercation and uh, Miles, Rafael Casal is there. And, um, you know, there's like this, basically the whole thing is he's trying to make this point of like, you know, I, the difference between who you and I are is that I, I don't kill people basically is the point he's trying to make. (laughs) And, um, you know, and, and then the cop ends up saying something. Um, he, he says he kind of just makes, you know, a case for himself, if you will. And then miles character, you know, he says something, he just says something real quick. And he just says, are you sure about something that the cop had said? And when he does that, it's very subtle, but he looks at the screen when he says that. He doesn't, he's not looking at the cop. He's looking at the screen when he says that. And for me, I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Like as if he's talking to the audience and he's talking to what's happening in the world out here. It was crazy, but I loved it. It was so cool. And um, I just, I think that that was so important. And I think it was very smart that they did it that way and that he put that in there like that. Um, but yeah, it was just everything about the movie is just so captivating and just very much like you are involved in these people's lives. You want to know what's about to happen. Like I would genuinely watch a show that was about just the adventures of these two in their lives. Like they were so fun to watch. Like they were funny together. They played off of each other so well, you know, but they're learning from each other. They're very involved in each other's lives. And it was just a really cool, like real friendship to see. And it it was just, it really drove a lot of what this movie was. Um, Because if they didn't have that closeness, a lot of these conversations they were having weren't going to mean as much coming from just strangers or people they didn't know. So the fact that they're so close and they're saying these things to each other, it, it means like, this is a serious thing that I want you to think about, you know, and it was, I, I just loved how they did that. Um, yeah, it was just really really great. And, um, I mean, and they have a lot of really funny scenes, like when Miles is going off, just like being insane, you know, like when there, he keeps like honking the the truck horn at the guy who just won't move his car and he just is going insane. And, um, like in the, the shop where they work or the moving truck place where they work, you know, these two guys come in and one of them recognizes Davy Diggs 
um, and kind of basically knows, like, he's like, oh, you're that guy from that place, you know, basically reenacts for us the story of what happens and what lands him in trouble. And the way he tells the story to me is so funny, though, like <laughs> doing like the voiceovers and like, you know, just it's just so funny and entertaining. And it's a an interesting way to tell the story of what actually happened and what um, started this whole you know, him being on probation now and all these things. So yeah, it's, there's just so much to take from the movie, like just so much to learn from it. And like I said, it's super creative. And then they put these pieces of like uh, spoken lyric stuff in it to um, basically in a lot of big moments, they're doing that because they're trying to, it, it's basically the equivalent of a character doing a monologue when they have a monologue about like a big, situation or they're trying to make a big point or have that big speech that you have in movies it's kind of the equivalent of that and that happens towards the end as well and it's amazing david diggs is like really he's the best at it he's amazing <laughs> but um yeah it's just really the only thing for me like if i have to pick something i didn't like about this movie and it's nothing about the movie it's just there's a couple of things i wish they would have added into it um I don't know if you guys watched the uh, deleted scenes that they had, but they had a couple of deleted scenes and I actually kind of wish that they would have put them in the movie. Like two of them are really just the two guys driving around in the truck and it's them trying to, um, you know, play off of each other, making up these spoken word things that they're doing. And I loved those scenes because, for one, it shows a lot more of their dynamic together. You get to see a lot more of their closeness and their friendship and how they are together. But it also, a lot of the things that they're doing their freestyle stuff about is, you know, seeing what's going on around them and how everything has changed and all of that. And it's, it's deep, but also super funny. And I just think that those would have really added to expressing how these guys are feeling about all the changes and everything going on in their world. Um, so my only like point of something that should be different is just adding those as actual scenes in the movie because they were really great scenes. So, um, but yeah, that movie is, I just, I honestly can't say enough good things about it. It's just a very, very wonderful movie. No. And to kind of go back to what both of you were saying with some of that stuff. I mean, when, when Justin, you were talking about how like, Raphael's character kind of like stole the movie for so long. I think that was kind of by design with his character being just that charismatic character because he was a mouthpiece, mm -hmm. you know, like that was a big thing of his character. One of his side hustles was the fact that he gets stuff like hair straighteners or a random boat and just figure out a way <laughs> to sell it <laughs> to anybody. And I loved it when he was selling that boat and it's this huge thing and it's crazy the way him and this guy are talking to each other. And afterwards, W was like, what were you saying? He's like, I have no idea, but that's, that's just who he right. was as a mouthpiece. He yeah. knew what you needed like, to hear he got sold. to sell it. And he was just, he, he was the guy that was easily charismatic. Whereas Dave, uh, David's character, well, he was the central character and you, you know, you were empathizing with him through a lot of that movie at that point. You just, you really had like, that was the point in the movie where his character really opened up kind of like what the other character had already done, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and so I, I think that's by design, but it's an incredibly smart design with how they did that. And, uh, one of the things that you were talking about, Heather with, um, with like 
David's character in that story when that guy's telling the story of what ended uh, David's character in jail. Like mm-hmm. to me, that was the, the, the most powerful thing about that scene was this guy's telling the story. Like it was just like a crazy story. Like it's like one of the stories like where you witness something at a party and it's just crazy. So you're just telling somebody that story. Whereas both David's character and uh, his ex-girlfriend's character, they're hearing that story and they were both there. And that's the story of one of the worst days of their lives. Mm-hmm. But for this guy, it was just a crazy story at a bar. And for them, it's yeah. what that it's the story of the night that changed both their lives. They're not together anymore because of that. And what like Justin was talking about, she now has this blind spot towards him because she can't see him without seeing that incident anymore. You right. know, and you know, and now David's battling with this sense of identity because of who is he now because of that night. And it's just crazy how all these layers, like it actually shows the layers of what can happen from just a simple story, you know, mm-hmm. because for this one guy, like I said, it was a crazy bar story. His friend who he's telling it to was like, oh man, that's a crazy story. Both of them, it's just a crazy story for these other people. Mm-hmm. It's the worst day of their lives. Yeah. And you can hear even in Val, the, the ex-girlfriend, when she's like talking about it, she's like, yep, all because of this, like basically trying to also tell the guys like. You might think it's a funny story, but all that started because of something that was not, that should not have started it. And so she was kind of like trying to like put her foot down on it and just be like, you know, tell like, this is what actually happened. And this is why it's not a good story. (laughs) Basically, you could kind of hear that in her voice when she's talking about it. Yeah, man, that was just a good, I was just going to give you an attaboy. That was a good observation, man, because yeah, even those storytelling characters and our Michael Pena-like kind of guy, uh, (laughs) yeah, that's true. They were blind spotted too, because like you said, that was the worst day of David Diggs and that girl's life. That's the story that broke them up and it was devastating and traumatic and everything and then to them it was just a story so even they in the story are blind spotted that that's awesome dude so yeah just wow this movie well it it kind of shows just how incredibly smart they were whenever they they interwove the idea of blind spotting into this movie and that they had it going Mm -hmm. throughout the entire movie even though they don't directly mention blind spotting to like what the last third of the movie is when they directly mention the word blind spotting. Yeah. And then, but it was halfway through the movie before they even mentioned the concept of it with the vase face, you know? Yeah. yeah. But, but it was still interwoven into that movie from the very beginning. Yeah, that's true. Because like even, even go back to like when David Diggs sees that guy die and then he tells everybody about it. And then they see the news story about it later and they're just like, Oh man, that's the, cra- you know, that's crazy. That's the, incident that you know david was talking about and to him that's also yeah. one of the worst times of his life but they weren't there so right. they just see it as oh that's what he's talking about yep 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 exactly wow man what an excellent movie i'm just so i i can't believe this didn't get more attention around oscar time i can't believe i'm trying to remember what else came out that year that this didn't this get would have been attention. the year the green book won <laughs> yep oh if you God. want to feel bad about it justin <laughs> this is the year the green book won. <laughs> oh god wow it's crazy in a year where this comes out and black klansman comes out and that wins and best green picture. book's the one that wins best picture yeah right but that's because green book fixed racism and neither one of those movies did just to tie it all back together 
whoever's listening to this, that is the problem. That's the problem. <laughs> right. Bam. Right there. What this, a perfect this way. This movie, it just, it is by and large better than like almost all these movies we've talked about almost <laughs> like it's so it's so deep like it just it does like you said sterling has all these layers to it like just peeling these different layers off and you just you find something different like i um you know i watched this movie a couple of times um and like you catch something different every time you watch it, like something you didn't see before because it's so layered and very well written. And it's, yeah, like you, you catch something different or something you didn't notice or themes you didn't notice before when you watch it again. And that is, it's a smart movie, you know, but it's also like, it's one of those that makes you think after you watch it, you're just sitting there thinking like Black Klansman, you know, where you just, you, I think that movie was one of the times like, one of the times I remember specifically leaving and being like, whoa, I just have so much stuff that I need to process with that. Like, you know, and this is one of those movies, I think, where you just you think about what happened and you think about everything going on with it. And you're just like, you know, like you're you're moved by it, honestly. So, I mean, even though they add a lot of funny elements to it, because that's how they're coping. It's it's moving. It's very moving. All right, Justin, do you want me to really break you? So this oh is this the year, the nominees for Best Picture. You have Roma, A Star, okay. a star is Born. Okay. Vice. Good. Which Vice had a good performance, but Vice isn't a good movie. Anyway, Black Klansman, yeah. Black Panther, The Favorite, okay. which is a good movie. If anybody hasn't seen The Favorite, which is go good watch too. Movie. Go watch yeah. it. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. Then you have Favorite's the good. utter shit show that was Bohemian Rhapsody. Which fuck that movie. I know oh, a lot of people yeah, like Big Freddy. Fuck that movie. Big Freddy. Oh man. And then the winner was Green Book. So yeah, so even then What? Yeah, like so all of that shit. And it's yeah, it, yeah, you're, you so you don't nominate a movie like this, fine, whatever. But then still, all those other great movies you still <laughs> this just is the go. one that won. Uh, Green Book. Oh man. It didn't even win that much other stuff either, which is the weird thing. I always think that's so crazy about the Oscars. Like it was nominated for a lot of stuff, but like it didn't win anything except best picture, (laughs) you know, and like all these other, like the favorite had so many, you know, best acting performances and, um, you know, just all these other movies that had so much more like that would make them viable for that <laughs> award and green book just somehow won it out of nowhere it seems like well i mean yeah because i mean the only other award it won was mahershala ali won best supporting actor which even then oh he did win for yes, that That's he right. won best supporting actor and vigo morrison was nominated for best actor but, but yeah it's crazy because like yeah wasn't nominated for best director you know the director wasn't nominated for best director and like all these things, like that's what's crazy to me is like when movies don't get nominated for best director, but then they'll win like best movie. And like, how does that work? Like, exactly. You're not you're saying that the director yeah. wasn't even good enough to get nominated for best director. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's oh crazy, crazy. And somehow and it also it won best original screenplay, too. It did win best original mm. screenplay. Okay, so maybe it, it won more than I remember. Which it beat out the favorite Vice, Roma, and First Reformed, which I don't know about that movie. Um, but yeah, so it, it still beat out all these other good movies, and Vice is not one of them, but it beat out the favorite in Roma. But like, ugh, 
How is that the best original screenplay? Garbage. Anyway, right. we're just going to end up talking about why Green Book sucks again. Um, Although, <laughs> yeah. <well>, I will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although what? No, I was just going to say, I was going to bring it back to um, blind spotting, though. Like, after watching this movie, I just kind of, in my research, I was starting to look at more things that they, David Diggs and Raphael Casal collaborate on a lot of things. And it's like my new favorite bromance. Like, they are amazing. Like, they have a lot of songs together. You just see a lot of their interviews and stuff like that that they do. They have, like, a session where they have a couple of other actors coming on, and they all just do, like, a two- or three-minute, you know, like, freestyle and play off of each other's freestyles that they do. Like, it, they're just so entertaining in everything that they do. So it was pretty amusing going down a trail of like seeing some of their other collaborations and stuff after watching this. We'll check them out then. So yeah, for sure. On that note, guys, thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Cinema Slayers podcast. Check us out on the internet at www.cinemaslayers.com. Check us out on Facebook at Cinema Slayers podcast. We are on Twitter and Instagram at cinema underscore slayers. Uh, we do have our Q&A episode. We will be recording a week after this comes out. So if you have any questions uh, that you want to ask us, uh, you know, email them to us at Cinema Slayers Podcast or message us on Facebook or Twitter or message us individually if you know us or just put a post on Facebook, whatever you want to do. Just ask us questions. Uh, we will do, be doing that. And we will be just answering questions in general from each other and all kinds of fun stuff because it will be our 100th episode. So look out for that. At uh, some point, I know I keep saying it. I just keep forgetting to do it. We're going to put the the voodoo shark tattoo winner out there on the Facebook so everybody can see that and stuff like that. And I will be getting tattooed on me. I'm waiting for phase four just to make it a little bit easier in Illinois to go get a tattoo because it's hard for me to get in uh, with my work schedule to schedule one. So waiting until it's a little easier for me. But uh, other than that, guys, um, remember, according to Justin, Moon Knight is the best picture winner. In the city, city of Compton, California, nobody party. He said the city of something. <laughs> he said the city, city of, Compton. of Compton. Oh, I thought he said the city of something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still mad you technically won. <laughs>